often what age and time will bring us is more maturity and hopefully a better experience of ourselves and maybe a different concept of self-esteem which is our ability to see ourselves as flawed individuals and still hold ourselves in high regard. Today on the podcast, we bring you a lively, direct, and deep talk with a Q&A session from renowned love and relationship expert, Esther Perel. Welcome to The Sounds of Sand, presented by Science and Non-Duality, offering dialogue on the bridge between science and spirituality. If you're ready to explore together, listen in now. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Welcome back to The Sounds of Sand, Episode 3. I want to thank you all again to all of our listeners and for all the wonderful feedback we've received over the last few weeks. And to get in touch and to be a part of the conversation, you can head over to scienceandnonduality.com and click on Media and then Audio. And from there, you can see our previous two episodes And the podcast is also available uh, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. And you can get in touch with us at podcast at scienceandnonduality.com to send us an email to let us know how you're liking the podcast and suggestions, offerings for future episodes. And today we have a magnificent talk that was from the SAND 2018 Radiant Intimacy Gathering, and our guest, Esther Perel, offers fresh insights into many topics around relationships and intimacy and romance. She talks about expectations and negotiations, intimacy, motherhood, turn-ons and turn-offs, and the coming and going of love and eroticism. And she concludes with a question and answer session from the audience, which we think confirms her reputation as one of the most brilliant and original authorities on the natural history of relationships. So let's get right into the talk in the Q&A, but first a quick introduction. Psychotherapist and New York Times bestseller, Esther Perel is recognized as one of today's most insightful and original voices on modern relationships. You can learn more about her at her website, estherperel.com, or by following her at estherperelofficial on Instagram, and we'll have links to all that in the show notes. And now I bring you The Future of Love with Esther Perel. Probably in the West, it's the first time that the preservation of the survival of the family depends pretty much entirely on the quality of the connection between the couple. That's it. And so this relationship 
issue, this relationship world that we are living in, is experiencing expectations that are at an all-time high. And I assume that we are all here together this evening, and I'm going to have a little bit of talking with you, and then we're going to have a real conversation all together, because we would like to find ways to have our relationships be more thriving, more meaningful, more satisfying, more fulfilling, because we probably can agree that it ultimately it is the quality of our relationships that determines the quality of our lives. Many of us may have stellar resumes, but that doesn't mean that we would have stellar eulogies. It's a very interesting distinction that David Brooks gave me, it, uh, but it really speaks to how we're going about to nurture and to cultivate our relationships. And I thought, since we're going to talk about the future of love and about the paradox of love and desire, that um, this was a very inspiring little uh, um, paragraph from Octavio Paz from a book called The Double Flame. The flame is the most subtle part of fire, moving upwards and raising itself above in the shape of a pyramid. The original, primordial fire of eroticism is sexuality. It raises the red flame of eroticism, which in turn raises and feeds another flame, tremulous and blue. It is the flame of love and eroticism, the double flame of life. And I've been um, searching for a long time about how we go about fanning this double flame. So let me ask you, just so we have a quick sense, how many of you are currently in a relationship? And how many of you would like to be in a relationship? <laughs> and how many of you would like to be out of the relationship you're in? <laughs> At least on occasion. <laughs> Honest. <laughs> and let me ask you, if you are in your 20s, raise your hand. If you are in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, fantastic, 80s, anybody? <laughs> this is to say, um, the beauty of this subject is that it only ends when um, something happened, right? <laughs> that was the end of the mic. <laughs> I was saying, I think I may need another battery, by the way. I was saying that the beauty of this topic is that as a, as a concern, as a pursuit, it only ends when we end meaning there is no age for it, except that often what age and time will bring us is more maturity and hopefully a better experience of ourselves and maybe a different concept 
of self-esteem, which is our ability to see ourselves as flawed individuals and still hold ourselves in high regard. It's not mine, it's from a very dear colleague, Terry Real, but I think it summarizes it beautifully. Love and desire, they relate and they also conflict. And herein lies the mystery of eroticism. You know, relationships are pretty much ch rapidly changing, and the expectations that we bring to our relationships are at an all-time high. The reason I talk about the couple is not because we are all necessarily in long-term relationships, but we have all been in relationships of some form or another. One, two, three, short, long, married, not married. I'm going to use sometimes the word couple because I'm, it's a certain unit that I'm emphasizing, but not because I'm interested in the status of your life at this moment. What's interesting for me about the couple is that it is probably the unit that has transformed the most in a very short amount of time. Forever, when we lived in the small villages and in the communities, you know, we basically lived communally and we knew who we were and who our identity was, and we knew where we belonged, and we knew what was expected of us, and we had a plenty of certainty and very little freedom. And we moved to the cities. And as we arrived into the cities, we got to be a lot more free and also a lot more alone. And as we became a lot more alone, we didn't have that many people around us all the time. And the relationship, the romantic relationship, became the harbor where we were going to vest many of our most important human needs. And now I was going to cultivate with you a unit, a connection, an intensity, a meaning that I could not necessarily get from my whole village. And in this connection, I was going to be able to transcend my existential aloneness. And in this new life that we began to have, we had a lot more options. We still have a lot more options, a lot more freedom, and a lot more uncertainty, and a lot more self-doubt. And all those things that used to be clear, about who is in charge and about who takes care of the children and who takes care of the cows and who gets to deal with the money and who gets to demand for sex and all of those things, everything today is one big freaking negotiation. <laughs> everything. You know, it's tiresome. It's enormously freeing and it's also very tiresome because it makes for a lot of arguments in which people think that they're right, when in fact they have no clue, because there is no right, because it's the first time that we even have the freedom to negotiate any of it. So who has an answer? And then a number of major other shifts have taken place in a very short amount of time. Sex, for most of history, when it came to committed relationships, was primarily for reproduction. And you needed to have 10 children if you wanted to have eight, because two were not going to make it. So it made for sex, but who knows if it was pleasant or connected or satisfying, who cared? And it was primarily a woman's marital duty. And duty got replaced with desire. And desire became an owning of the wanting. Desire became an expression of a sovereign self. And all of that could only happen with one of the greatest revolutions called the democratization of contraception, 
which allowed women to go to work, and which allowed us for the first time to separate sex from reproduction, which we now have separated reproduction from sex, and which we are now separating gender from anatomy. And all these categories have made it so that for so long, sexuality was primarily from the realm of biology. It was a part of your condition, just something that is part of who we are. But today, sexuality is not just a part of our biology, it's a part of our identity. And it's something that I define, that I give meaning to. Sexuality has become a property of the self that is part of our sense of self-definition. That's why a lot of the things that are happening are so crucial. And not only did the meaning of sex change, but the whole meaning of committed relationship, or what traditionally has been marriage, which was primarily an economic institution. We have transformed it into a romantic arrangement. We brought love into marriage. We brought sex to love. We brought the connection between sexual satisfaction and marital happiness. All these units that have never really been connected like that. And we also brought happiness down from the heavens. It used to be for the afterlife. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, now we actually think that we deserve to be happy in our long-term relationships, and the long-term keeps getting longer. <laughs> It's a long haul. You know, I want with the same person everything that I wanted in traditional relationship. I wanted commitment and family life and social status and, and economic support. But I also want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. And for the first time, we want to reconcile in our relationships two fundamental sets of human needs, our need for security and our need for adventure our need for stability and our need for change, our need for all the anchoring experiences of our life, the reliability, the predictability, the roots. But also, I want with the same person to have novelty and surprise and mystery and danger and risk and unknown and discovery and exploration. And I want one thing between six and eight, and I want the other one between eight and ten. <laughs> Just a shift in narrative. You know, and we really think that this stuff can be solved with Victoria's Secret. <laughs> and as you know, there is no Victor's Secret yet. So we also know where the responsibility lies. You know, we've never tried to really experience these two fundamental sets of human needs, which really spring from different sources and pull us in different directions, and try to reconcile them into one relationship. Which is why I always ask myself, why does good sex so often fade, even in couples who continue to love each other as much as ever? And why does good intimacy not guarantee good sex? And why is the forbidden so erotic? And why do children come, you know, or maybe differently, why does sex make babies and then babies spell erotic disasters in couples? <laughs> And can we want what we already have? Which is probably the most fundamental question around desire. And when you love, how do you feel? And when you desire, how is it different? Because when we love, we want to, to know 
the partner. We want to be known. We want to minimize the distance. We want to close the gap. We want to neutralize the tension. But when we desire, we often want a bridge and somebody that we can go visit on the other side. We had this whole exercise today about I'm most drawn to my partner when, because I've been talking about this since last night. <laughs> this is just, so we've been on a long conversation. And what was fantastic was that, you know, all the first answers, I am most drawn to my partner when, I see him or her in his or her element, passionate about something they do, competent at what they're doing, doing something that they really like, basically in a state of self-sufficiency where they are wrapped into themselves. And I can look at this person who is otherwise already so familiar and so known and look at them once again as somewhat elusive and somewhat mysterious and with still something to discover about them. And that curiosity that lives in that space between me and the other, that is the erotic elan. And everyone gets that distinction, that there is a certain kind of unknown tension that we need to be able to cultivate in our midst. But we don't like the idea, because we also want to feel that we are in very known and safe territory. For some of us, having the unknown next to us is really an opportunity for more discovery and more exploration. And for some of us, it makes us intensely anxious. And each of us, by the way, on this continuum between security and adventure, come out of our childhood with one of two stronger needs. Some of us, will have a greater need for security and for protection and for grounding and for predictability because we grew up in chaotic, unpredictable environments and we never knew what to expect. And some of us will come out of our childhood and want more space and more freedom and more time alone. And the beauty of coupling is that we tend to find somebody else who inhabits the part of us that we would like more of, but would just as well leave to the other to take care of. <laughs> Do you understood that? I will find a person who has the other side, because I'm drawn to it. But since you do it so much better than me, keep on doing. <laughs> that way, I can, I can pretend I want different and continue to be the same. You know. Monogamy used to be one person for life. Today, monogamy is one person at a time. <laughs> and people go around telling you that they are monogamous in all their relationships, plural. <laughs> and you try telling that to my grandmother, you know. <laughs> people used to marry and they had sex for the first time, and today people marry and they stop having sex with others. Marriage used to be for life till death do us apart, and today it pretty much is till love dies. And we no longer just divorce because we are unhappy, but we can divorce because we could be happier. And all those are fundamental changes in the realm of our relationships and our pursuits of what it takes to have a thriving relationship. We used to be unfaithful 
because relationships or marriages were not meant to bring us passion and love and affection and connection. Today, we stray because our relationships have failed to deliver the passion and the love and the affection that they promised. Infidelity used to be primarily an economic threat. Today, it becomes a crisis of identity and the shattering of the grand ambition of love. Monogamy, by the way, had nothing to do with love. It was primarily an imposition on women. Men have always been able to, to walk around much more freely because the consequences were much less dire. So this has never been an equal gender proposition. And there are still nine countries where women can be killed just for looking in the wrong direction. Today, monogamy is a conviction, and it is an expression of our... It is really the sacred cow of the romantic ideal. <clears throat> but exclusivity means something very different when you meet somebody and it's your first partner in life versus when you meet somebody and you're finally going to delete your apps and all the other thousand people that could give you a real case of FOMO. <laughs> it's a different landscape. And on top of it, one of the main things people ask me all the time is, how do you know when you have found the one? How many of you have asked yourself that question? Have you found the one? Right? And so I'm thinking, you know, this is a very interesting, very quick answer for me. There is no the one. There is... <laughs> On that one, I can actually kind of answer very clearly. And, and, and by the way, I just say this. That means that's what I think, but that doesn't mean I'm right. You understand? There is no the one. There is a one you pick. And when you pick a partner, you pick a story. And as I have sometimes added, and sometimes you will be recruited for a play that you didn't audition for. <laughs> <sighs> but there is a person. And with that person, you create a story. Because our relationships are our stories. And hopefully, we get to write often. And more importantly, we need to edit well. And that means editing ourselves as well. So, I'm going to play you another clip of the orchestra. The podcast that you're listening to was for me an attempt to kind of say, here is this thing, our relationships. And what's happening today is that fake news is not just in politics. It's also on social media. And we are in this kind of situation where people are curating and presenting these filtered stories, and we all know that it's not true, but we just don't get a chance to talk truth enough. We also seem to be able to uproot ourselves faster than we can repot a plant. And many of us have a thousand virtual friends and no one to ask when we need to feed our cats. So we are way more isolated, you used to know everything that used to happen to the couples in the village because you could hear every fight and every frog through the walls. <laughs> but today, your, partner, your friends can come and tell you that they are separating and you didn't even see it coming. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so I thought, I'm going to create a virtual village with a podcast where people get to listen to what happens with the neighbors. And when they listen really deeply, they will actually realize that they're often standing in front of their own mirror. 
but we are going to listen to each other again and get a realistic sense of what actually we are all grappling with and how much of these shared experiences we don't get to really talk about so that everybody has to go at it alone and wonder, do other people deal with this too? Are we the only ones? So, orchestra. This is, I will tell you afterwards, I don't even think you need to know more about them. You see, you two don't have a problem loving each other. You know, you have this elephant that's been between the two of you for a long time with a complete over-focus on your performance, on the erectile difficulties, you know, and all these ugly words that are completely shaming and emasculating, and you know the word emasculating does not exist in the feminine. That's a plague for men. So change the language because it is crippling. And it's as if you don't have a whole body. Mm -hmm. We make love with the whole body and a lot of other parts of us, not just with our genitals. If you stay focused on those damn genitals, not much is going to happen. Simply because it's reductionistic and rather boring. And plus, mm -hmm. you can't rely on them. But you can rely on your hand, you can rely on your, on your smell, you can rely on your skin, you can rely on your hair, you can rely on your voice, you can rely on your smile, on your eyes. My God, there's a lot of instruments mm -hmm. in this orchestra. How many of you would say that it's easy for you to talk about your sexual needs or feelings or preferences? How many of you would love for it to be easier? Yes, okay. And how many of you would say that you had appropriate sex education? <laughs> this is an incredible thing. You know, in Belgium, we start sex education in kindergarten. It's, we do it one, we, in Flemish Belgium, where I'm from, not in the Francophone part. And we um, are a different system. But basically what we do is we do one week a year, we call it the week of love. And it goes from, four, from five to eight, and eight to 11, and 11 to 14, and 14 to 18. And it becomes an integrated system of education in which we talk about relationships. One of the greatest differences between this model versus the model in the US is that in America, sex is the risk factor. In, one of, in some of the other European countries, sex is the normal thing. Being irresponsible is the risk factor. Once you have that as the norm, then you can actually teach people how to have good judgment and how to experience pleasure and connection, and how not to focus on an education that is either focused either on plumbing, or on dangers, or on disease, or on dysfunctions. Um, and then, if we get that in place, and we actually let people do these classes together, not separate, then we will have very different conversations about consent later on. It's a long line. So, if I ask you, 
What are some of the things that are most difficult to talk about? Here is a society that, on the one hand, oozes with sex and kind of combines excessive practices with repressive tactics, back and forth, back and forth. People talk about sex all the time, just not with the person they're having sex with. <laughs> you know. Um, but, but everyone seems to want to experience it with a certain level of satisfaction. Even when people complain about the listlessness of their sex lives, they sometimes may want more sex, but they always want better sex. And the better that I hear them talking about is a sense of aliveness, a sense of vibrancy, a sense of vitality, a sense of playfulness, a sense of renewal, a sense of connection, that which gives meaning to sex, i.e. the erotic. Not the act, but the enchantment. Not the positions, but the energy, the encounter. And yet it seems so difficult for us to actually be able to talk about it without either feeling shame or guilt, or discomfort, or embarrassment, or fear of judgment, or disgust, or a lot of things like that. So, let's talk together. When I think about the future of love, I think about how do we destigmatize some of these conversations, where we can actually, with each other, with ourselves, have an honest exploration of where we are at and what we would want. The majority of the time we do what we should and what we think is appropriate, but that doesn't mean that we do what we really like. And it's worse for women in that domain. Because women know what turns them on, but women have always chosen what will make them feel safe instead of what turns them on, because that's what they had to do. And for the rest, we don't really know what they want, because they've never been asked too much of that question. When I think about the future of love, I think about what is going to be the influence of the digital on our relationships. What does it mean when they just sold 6.3 million VR? <laughs> you know, what does it mean when half of Americans say that they would be perfectly happy to have sex with a robot? You know, what, what is happening when we are becoming less and less attuned to each other? You know, how are we going to experience the 3D experiences? And at the same time, I think also about the fact that we are, for the first time, renegotiating all kinds of boundaries around monogamy and around the meaning of monogamy, so that it doesn't just get defined by sexual exclusivity. That is a real new frontier. Then I think also about the opportunity that comes at this particular moment in terms of renegotiating some of the oldest power exchange systems, whereby men have always been able to leverage social power in order to gain sexual favors, and women have had to use their youth and their beauty in order to have access to social power that would otherwise be denied to them. And this oldest exchange, this is the oldest trade show, is now for the first time being reckoned with, and it's going to be fantastic if we do it well.
the lives of women will not change until the men come along. And women have had 50 years of doing this, of being able to rethink their role at work and at home. And it needs to give, we need to have the same opportunity for men to also rethink what will be the new definition for masculinity. How are we going to deal with the definitional void of manhood so that it doesn't just stay in some old fixed code? And all of this is going to be part of the future of love. And it is actually already part of your relationship. So when you think about what are some of the main questions, challenges, that you bring to this conversation? And what are some of the main resources that you bring to these conversations? That's what I would like us to talk about. Okay? Let's go. Talk to me. Right there, all the way there. And you know how it works. If you really want to ask something but you don't dare, you can always say that you have a friend. <laughs> and you can always say, I know someone. You know, it just takes the first one to get going. Go ahead. Yes. Okay, is it on? Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Thais. I'm just wondering if in your work you have come across uh, the role of biology in all of this and how um, both through nutrition and lifestyle practices, the influence on that on couples either getting along or not getting along. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you. Yes. I'm going to hear a few and then I'm going to, yes, keep talking. My name is Kristen, and when I met my husband, we were very sexually active and very attracted to each other. And then when I became a mother, I felt very different around him. And that now I'm a mother, we shouldn't be having the same sexual experiences that we've been having. And it was um, life-changing for me, and it's really affected our relationship. So. How do you regain that intimacy that you had prior to children that was so connected and still feel like a mother and normal and what everyone perceives that you should? Great question. Right next to you. Can I ask how many of you this is a question that is relevant to you? Checks and parenthood? Sex and the transition to motherhood. Okay, yeah, let's go. Next to you, yes. So I find that through most of my relationships, people are drawn to me because of my free spirit and adventurous, and then it's like, ooh, I love your free spirit. Let me cage it all for myself. <laughs> and as much as like, I'm conscious of myself and the people I'm with, blah, 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 I have a friend who's cheated on every long relationship that they've ever been in.
so how do you balance out that <laughs> wanting to be with this person or have this feeling for the rest of your life? It's not always about the person, right? It's like that feeling. And, you know, the desire to maybe, there's all, especially in the Bay Area, open relationship and all these different pieces. But I also find myself like, that primal like security, you know, how do I feel safe in, in this and also have the free spirit that wants to be caged? You see what I'm saying? That wants to be caged, but, or that has, but that doesn't want to be caged. The free spirit that people are drawn to. Yeah. And then it's like, I love your free spirit. Let me cage it and keep it all for myself. Yes. Get it. Thank you. Good. Yes. Yeah, right here. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, mine's a quick one, but it's about all the time you spend working with people, and then there's emotional connection, which then breaks down what's at home. Meaning, meaning that meaning sometimes you give the best of yourself at work, and you bring the leftovers home. And then there's an emotional connection because of the project at work and all of a sudden that seems more fulfilling and feel, feeding more needs and home is letting you down. Right. No, home is not letting you down. You're letting home down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different order. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there are two here, right here. Hi, I'm Cassie, and I wanted to say thank you for talking about how women have been doing this for 50 years, and men need to catch up. I think you and a few others talk about this in a societal point of view. Could you help us understand on the personal, those of us who are dating, those of us who are in relationships, who are on the day-to-day, -day, how can women help men catch up? How can men catch up? How can we start to do this on the personal? Okay, one more and then we'll do a, okay. a, another batch. Yes. Hi, I'm Ella. I want to ask, um, in today's day and age where porn and Tinder are so accessible, when does it become so minor or small that it's almost not like infidelity? Like, does looking at porn count as cheating or... Um, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Good. Okay. Listen, people, these are very beautiful questions, every one of them. We could just, you know, go on a, on a, on a real journey with this, because many of these questions are not always just simple, simple problems that have an answer and a solution. Sometimes they are paradoxes that you manage, and sometimes they are um, interconnected with a lot of other things. So let me just say very briefly. The one about uh, the role of biology, of, you know, I don't talk much about biology because it's not the area I focus on, but that doesn't mean that I'm not fully aware of it all the time. Um, I think Justin yesterday was talking in, uh, you know, about the breakdown of nature and nurture. It, you know, they interact all the time. Do I think that when people don't eat well, 
they have a different metabolism, a different physiology, a different mood, a different regulation. Yes, does that influence their relationship? In some cases a lot and in others not at all. The people that I see that are in a real rut, do I think that if they ate healthier they would have a better relationship? Not sure. They have a lot more to do than that. But do I think that if they ate better, that meant that they also began to think a little bit more in a self-aware way about what they do and how they treat themselves, and that that would have a connection, therefore, to how they are in the relationship? Of course. But it's not the food. It's the attention that they're paying to what they're stuffing in themselves. Do you understand the distinction? You know? Um, on the, on, on, um, on sexuality and parenthood, look, it's a very interesting thing, right? Why is it that, that for so many couples, marital satisfaction plummets after the arrival of the first child, or relational satisfaction? Straight, gay, all, it doesn't matter, really, on that one. And, um, and I think that one of the things that starts to happen is that when you look at this little relationship here, 18 centimeters, right? This adoring gaze, the licking, the nibbling, the tickling, you know, this is pretty much what you used to do in the beginning with your partner. <laughs> this is a total erotic connection. It doesn't mean sex, it just means it's pleasurable, it's sensual, it's erotic, it's, it's soft, it's tender, it's all of that. And sometimes you may think when you say, at the end of the day, I have nothing left to give. And I want to say to you that maybe what would be a more correct sentence is, at the end of the day, there is nothing more I need. Capish? You know, because you satiate it, and because it takes a deliberate effort to actually create that boundary, the silky skin of the baby is unsurpassed. <laughs> you have to literally tell it to yourself, however soft and adorable it is, if I want to maintain a relationship with my partner, I'm going to really have to redirect my gaze to my partner, male or female partner. And it is a deliberate thing. And in order to make that more doable, what often works well at that transition point is to have one person, every relationship will have a frontline parent. Uh, the frontline parent is the parent, it's not just the parent who's more involved, it's also the parent who more easily hears the cries at night. It's the parent who has a different sensory threshold. It's the parent who more easily can drop what they're doing in order to take care of the kid. They have a different sense of boundary. The other one is much more able to read the paper and not hear a thing. <laughs> this is a cliche, but you are, it's a, and that frontline parent often needs help to be able to be taken out of the situation of the full parenthood so that you can remember and he can help you, if it's a he, retrieve the woman from behind the mother. And that means that you have one... <laughs> it means you have one person who is thinking about the kiddos and you have another person who is thinking about what we're going to do when we are without the kiddos. One makes sure the kiddos are fine and the other one makes sure that the couple maintains themselves. And to have that dual relationship, it's a real distribution of roles for those first three years, three years for each, so we can add up, you know, till the youngest is three is really the idea here. 
Then it's when your partner comes and says, come and spend some time with me, you're not going to say, how can you think about that? Look how much I still have to organize. You know, it's like the biggest slob suddenly starts to organize every little place of Playmobil. You know, because it, it organizes you. And then you have to ask yourself, is it okay to attend to myself? Because if you're going to be sexual or sensual, it means you're going to at some point focus on you. And that focusing on you today seems to be quite difficult for mothers who want to be 24-7 attentive to their Smurfs. <laughs> mothers and fathers, it doesn't matter. Parents I'm talking about, you know. And so then you start to feel guilty, you know. And here is the thing, on the long list of what your kids need, you should make sure that having sex or a sexual connection of some sort, an erotic connection I'm talking about, I don't care how often you make love, that's not the point, but to have a connection with your partner should feature as one of the main things on the list of what your kids need. Because otherwise, sooner or later, they won't be a family. So if you don't want to do it for you, do it for your kids. This mic needs a new battery because I'm going in and out. I don't know who takes care of that, but... Two. Two. Okay. Hello. Two. Good. Um, does that begin to address what you're talking about? You know, it, the, the, the notion that... You know, I'm going to give it to you in a different version. If I think about, and this is going to link actually also about uh, the thing about the men. Where's the woman with the men? Yeah, you. <laughs> you know. Here's the thing. If I think about what are two major erotic blocks. And when I say men and women, I mean that there doesn't always have to be in the body of a man or of a woman. Just broaden the categories, okay? But what I know is that if I work with straight couples, I can see it really easily. The straight men will often tell me, nothing turns me on more than to see her turned on. You know it? You've heard it or said it? All right. I have yet to hear a woman say that to me. <laughs> it's irrelevant. <laughs> what happens to him? or to the other person is irrelevant. It's what happens to her that matters. Now, I've tried to understand that for a long time. This is a, an obvious thing, but it wasn't so easy to make sense of this. Like, why not? You know? And then I began, uh, there's a, a fantastic sex researcher, Marta Mayana, who helped me understand a lot of things. When he says, or when one says, Nothing turns me on more than to see my partner turned on. It is really one of the most powerful statements against the predatory fear. If you are into it, then I know that I'm not hurting you. If you are into it, then I know that you are enjoying it and that I am not in an act of violence, but in an act of delight. And the only thing I have to know that it isn't violence, but it, isn't, but it is sexual delight, as in not just consent, but more than that, is by the virtue of your response to me. And by the way, to the woman of porn, this is one of the great things you get on porn all the time. You get a person who's always into it. 
She's never tired. She never has a headache. She never says not tonight. She's into it so much so that she does, he doesn't have to worry about hurting her and her fragility and her brittleness. That's part of the part she plays. So the fear of the predator, and this is a very important thing because so much emphasis at this point is on the male inherent aggression in their sexuality and the predatoriness of male sexuality. I think the vast majority of men are not predators, the vast majority of men are afraid of being predators. And that's why they need a willing partner. But what is the thing for women? She doesn't say what turns me on is to see him or her turned on because that's not going to do much. If she's not into it, she's not into it, the shop is closed. But what she does, nothing turns me on more than to be the turn on. And in order to be the turn on, I need to feel legitimately allowed to focus on myself. And in order to focus on myself, I have to be free of the burden of caretaking. And the burden of caretaking is the big block for women. And that's what you get when you start to be from the carefree woman who suddenly has a child and now thinks that you are in a function of caretaking all the time rather than giving care to yourself. And that's the transition. In order to be sexual again, it has nothing to do with your sexuality or your hormones or any of this. And why do I say that? Because I've studied for the last nine years unfaithful women. And one of the most important things they experience in their affairs is that for once they're doing it something that is just for themselves. And they're taking care of nobody. But of course they don't sometimes know how to do it in the context of their own family, so they have to go outside. I see you are in tears, but would you let me know why? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I will come down in a minute. You know, so the thing about the men, for me, I think the thing that stands in the way at this moment that I hear from a lot of women is, I shouldn't have to explain. I'm tired of explaining. Time of helping them understand that whole thing. And, you know, I, when I think about norms that change, because this is a moment of a normative change, right? I, there's two instant examples that come up to me of how things were done. The first is the gay movement. Do you know, the gay movement, the demonstrations on the street were never just gay people alone. It was everybody. It's actually one of the first things I did when I came to the US. And it was Gay Pride Day, and, and I remember, it's just like the thing you went, and you didn't think about it, you know, you just were solidarious of people who needed a fundamental change of rights. I cannot imagine the gay movement with people who were just among themselves. And that was the strength. This idea that now it's women who need to talk and men should just be quiet, is to me completely off. But that means that I think that women will need to, you know, if we want to use the jargon of women need to find their voice and their power and all of that, fine. But men need to be able to also speak, but from a different place. 
Under patriarchy, you can either be powerful or connected, but not both. Wholeness means that everybody gets to be and powerful and connected. That's what you strive for. So, your greatest asset is to tell somebody, you know, what's the life of men like at this moment? What's this confusion? What's this silence? What's this notion that every second man who goes around saying, you know, I have a sexual past too? And God knows what I may have done that today, under a different scrutiny, with different norms, is no longer acceptable when, etc., etc. And I think that those conversations in the intimate realm, just with friends first, with people that you are more comfortable with, not on a date necessarily, but in the... <laughs> that doesn't mean that I don't think that they are fascinating conversations on a date, actually. But my, my point is, there's so much to learn. I spend time doing conversations with men only, nonstop. I spend conversations with women only, and I'm thinking, for God's sakes, what would it be like if everybody just got to hear what, what is being said in the other room? You know, so to me, this is the opportunity. It's, there are lots of things, there are a lot of experiences. I was in a company two days ago, and it's a tech company, so, at some point, one of the men starts to talk about, um, this was the whole men, only men. And um, basically, when you are in a tech company of that high level, a lot of the men that are there are the guys who wait lunch alone. They are the boys that used to eat lunch alone. You understand? They were not your popular types, necessarily. They were the ones that sat often in their room and took the computers apart. And they were bullied. And then he starts to talk, one guy, so out of the blue, starts to talk about being bullied. And then I just said, 70 men in the room, may I ask how many of you have been bullied? And two-thirds of the men stood up. Now, bullied means humiliation. And humiliation is the bane for men. So, so many untold stories at this moment, and such fantastic opportunity that need to be done not on social media and not by trolls, but by people, just when they meet and they talk and they just have conversations about life and about where you've been and how you grew up and what's been your relational histories and all of that, and to do it in a comfortable way. It's not a, you know, a hush conversation on the porn question and the Tinder and the cheating. Look, the definition of infidelity keeps on expanding at this moment. You know, is being on porn, is it porn just with a webcam? Is it Tinder, is it being still on Tinder when you're already three months into it? And secretly staying active on your dating apps? Is it reconnecting with your ex on Facebook? Is it going to a massage with happy endings? You know, it's... And the, the truth is, the definition at this point is in the hands of the people who are in a relationship together. It's a whole subjective thing. Okay? Um, so, that is really where this is at. Is, is, but what is... <laughs> for some people, it is an integrated experience. There is no... 
for other people. And by the way, porn is never, I've never seen it be a source of any infidelity among gay men. This is a straight concern. Yeah, I mean, I've yet to hear a straight guy say, you know, you are attracted to people that don't look like me and I don't look alike and I don't have that age and I can't compete with that person. And that's a whole narrative that you hear in heterosexual couples around porn quite a bit, you know. But what is interesting is to always to ask the question, why would somebody go online when I have another person in the room next to them? That's an interesting question. And so I think that the, that the interesting piece for me around porn is that it actually is a place where men can go and deal with their most fundamental sexual vulnerabilities. What do I mean by that? You are never rejected in porn. That's the number one thing. You are never rejected. And rejection, and the humiliation that comes with rejection, is one central concern. For the initiator, which in most societies has always been put on men. The second thing is that you never have to worry about performance and competence in porn either. You do what you want. And you never have to worry if you come too fast, or too late, or too this, or too that. You, you are free from the anxiety of performance. That's the second most important sexual vulnerability for men. And the third one is she always screams and comes and says, more, 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 me too. So you don't have to worry about if she's liking it and if you are with somebody without knowing what they're going through. Once you understand what is the dialogue between a person, besides that it's exciting and arousing, that's there too. But the most important thing is, what is the sexual dialogue that is happening between a person and a person for whom porn becomes a primary conduit around sexuality? This is not about being pro-porn or not pro-porn, it's just to understand what's the dialogue, what's the relationship. And once you put it in the context of insecurity or vulnerability, then you have a much better way of understanding what is the lure and the attraction to it. And by the way, to the question about the men. One other thing that is really clear to me, because there has been such a focus at this point about the powerful men, you know, and the harassment of powerful men. Powerful men don't harass. Powerful men seduce. It's insecure men that harass and assault. Let's not mix the metaphors. All right. How are we doing? We have time. Shall we continue? All right. Talk to me. Yes. Plenty, plenty of people. Who has a mic? Yes. So I have recently gone through some major internal changes in my life. And for my wife, who's a very loving partner, um, it seems like there's a new person in the room. And we are trying to navigate around that, both of us. I'm kind of living, feeling like a pretty new person in my skin, and she's now married to somebody else than she married. Right. But you're going to just tell the story and leave out the essential piece, so I can't... <laughs> <laughs> you know, something major has happened to me, and I'm totally transformed. <laughs> what? <laughs> 
am I supposed to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> and so, I think she doesn't quite feel safe. <laughs> I think she doesn't quite feel safe because there's a new person in the room. Yeah, I get it, I get it, but seriously, you're giving it to me. What is new? <laughs> I mean, what is the question? The question is, how do we navigate around? But I don't know what you're navigating, except that you are different. That's what we're navigating. Well, but... <laughs> Never mind. If you're going to give me vague, I'm going to give you vague back. Okay. <laughs> so, I so, think it's hard for us to get into a sexual rhythm now. Right. I think, I think things are different, and she's looking at me like a different person, because I appear to be. She's sitting next to you, right? I know. <laughs> I noticed <Miss>. that. <laughs> Would you care to fill in the gap? This is like a Swiss cheese. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I don't know what's in his head, but um, my... Yeah, where should we begin? My guess would be is that... How, how do we start again? in the framework of what is, you know, 12 years of having this relationship and kind of re-explore or just explore what's going on and be safe in that? No, you won't be safe. You will be taking risks. And as you take risks, then you may feel more safe. If you just wait to feel safe like that, and then hope that it's going to launch you. It's not generally the way it works. You are not in a safe moment in your relationship. Don't pretend. If it's new, if it's different, if you've changed something or broken something, or whatever you're doing, then it's a moment of um, it's a moment of risk taking. And you either do it because you think somebody, uh, Sasha, said a beautiful line today. She said, "Are you willing to risk your life in order to feel alive?" Or are you willing to risk your life in order to have a life together? So that's your thing. But if you're going to do the you first, après vous, <laughs> you know, very polite. If I see you do this and not stumble too much, I can do it too. No, you know, this is a thing, a decision that you make with yourself. Each of you with yourself, very privately. And then you just show up. You know, I, there's a, a line that I once gave at the end of, a, of, the, of the talk, the TED talk, but it's a line that I had actually used for my own marriage, you know, where I said, today, most of us in the, the West are going to have two or three relationships. Marriages, not marriages, you know. And some of us are going to do it with the same person. So your first relationship is over. Now the question is, do you want another one with each other? And if you do, plunge. And don't do small steps. Don't do small steps. You know, and on occasions, just say, I'm scared shitless. This is, this, this, I'm unmoored, this is totally not the way we've been. Who are you? Who am I? And that's, that's the beginning of this. Now, I have no idea what actually made this change, but that's how I would probably... Um, I think I know, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> yes. There, and there, and there, and there. Yeah. Hi, uh, my focus is on your... No, you need to... 
Go ahead. My focus is on your theory about the orchestra of erotic. Yes. Um, my relationship is monogamous and it's successful and he's 7,000 miles away and he's in the Middle East. So there's a cultural difference. But what I've noticed is that we have to be really attuned to what you're talking about beyond the sexual connection of voice, uh, vision, the audible. And I'm not talking just about you know sexting or phone sex. Just hearing people's voices, hearing my lover's voice and the way he talks to me and how he chooses his words in writing. And the focus is so beyond just the sexual genitalia because we only see each other every couple of months, but we talk every day. And this has been a gift for me because I think about the relationships, most of the people in this room with their lovers right next to them that don't pay attention to these things or don't enhance that aspect of your body and how you can give your pleasure and receive pleasure from these senses that are beyond right. your genitalia. When, when, um, at uh, South by Southwest, I played a clip from the podcast and I blindfolded 2,500 people because I wanted them to listen. Because when you can't talk, watch and be on your screen or check the room or the whole thing, and when one of the senses is taken away, you put another focus on the other senses. And so what you're saying is, Depending on the context of your relationship, yours being long distance, but that's just one example, it has given you the opportunity of paying attention in a way that you would otherwise not pay attention. And that's very beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Where is that mic? Oh, sorry. Here. Here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thank you. My name is Ron. One of my favorite parts of your work is uh, your willingness to listen to men's part of the story. And I think one of the biggest challenges I and probably many other men face at this day and age is the lack of a clear role model for men. We are expected to be you know, very career driven, but at the same time home by five and excited about changing diapers. We are expecting. No, no, you don't have to be excited. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has to be excited. That is fair. We, just <laughs> uh, we are expected to be horny but faithful. We are expected to be so many confusing ideas. Uh, we're, and at the end of the day, um, it's unclear how we really should behave. Can we compliment a woman, or is that a form of harassment? Can we, you know, can we talk about our feelings, or is that too effeminate? Uh, if, if anything... Can we talk about our feelings, or is it what? Too effeminate, too, too feminine, in a way. And frankly, more importantly, it appears that what we're expected to be at this day and age is a more feminine version of ourselves. And my Give question it to, to him, he's talking for a lot of people. <laughs> What's your name? Uh, Rami. Rami? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so just my question to you is, how do we find a new role model at this day and age? Thank you. <laughs> you know, three years ago, people asked me what was going to be my next subject, and I said men. Long before any of this happened. And people said, nobody will be interested. <laughs> Seriously. And I said, I'm telling you, it's the next thing coming. It's the next thing that has to come. I don't have a real answer. I raised two boys. 
I've been thinking about this for a long time. I raise them cross-culturally, so I also think of it interculturally, you know, and all of that. Um, I think that um, I, so basically, first of all, I have no answer like that. What I do know is that um, many boys, most boys, <laughs> are raised by fathers and mothers or caregivers. And these caregivers basically are the conduit for a lot of the messaging that goes into those boys. What I know is that we touch our boys less than our daughters, starting at the age of four. What I know is that we overestimate their physical abilities when they sometimes don't have any, because we want to see them as more masculine. Meaning that whatever we do to our boys in the way that we want to raise them is often what's going to turn them out later to be the kind of man that we don't want to be with. What I know is that we often help boys to disconnect from their feelings and from their need from others. That we want them to be achievement-oriented, performance-oriented, fearless, competitive, needless, play through the pain and move on. And that, that is called the male code. I think that is toxic masculinity. The rest is just addendum. And that... <laughs> You know, but it's very difficult to change just like that because many people who raise those boys are anxious because we have a way of thinking that you are born a woman but you become a man and masculinity has to constantly prove itself to be a real man. But to be a real man, that is not the same kind of real man as the fathers were. So I start to think about another normative shift that happened recently, and I think, how did that one happen? Corporal punishment. 50 years ago, it was a norm. How many of you were regularly slapped as a part of discipline? Wow. Wow. How many of you still do this as a part of normal discipline? How many of you have done it on occasion and regret it afterwards? Right. You know, this is a normative change, 50 years. And it went without blaming and naming. It went because something shifted that said, children will not be stronger when you hit them. This notion that a good smack makes character may not be so true. That being caring and being nurturing to them is actually better Maybe not too far as we have taken it now, but certainly better than it was. And I think, you know, how would we redefine masculinity the way we redefine children? That's the exercise I do when I try to think, how does one make this thing happen? You know? Um, I also think that to, for the men to do this whole process, women have to become a lot more honest with themselves. Because the truth is that we want sometimes to see that soft, vulnerable, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, it's very scary. Because we are always afraid that if a man gets softer, he's going to turn into jello. There is a profound distrust 
that he too can be soft without necessarily falling apart. That, the, you know, there is a notion that it's, it's either tough or on the other side of the continuum. And that is a fear that women experience vis-a-vis -vis men way often and don't always admit it. Who am I going to rely on? I need you to be my rock. And rocks break. They don't bend and then come back. So it's a very interdependent process. I'm very happy you asked the question. I would like every talk where I'm at for 10 guys to get up and ask those questions because I think that to make the questions go underground and just avoid the whole thing is a disaster. Voilà, that's what I have to say about this. People, we have two minutes, so whoever is going to get that last question, think very well. <laughs> huh? Did I forget about you? Did I forget about you? Which one was you? <laughs> ah, the free spirit! Yes! <laughs> Thank you! <laughs> Oh, God. I think the, no, you know what? It's actually, I'm going to put the free spirit, but I'm going to now put it in the context of the question that was just asked, right? Um, because it's really, what's, what is scary? What is scary when people are not behaving according to um, gender normative expectations, basically? And according, not necessarily always gender specific, but just according to script. Um, by definition, you have two questions. Why do you find yourself with people who first are drawn to it and then actually want to domesticate you? Which is, by the way, the story that women have done with men a long time. You find yourself the wild cowboy and then you domesticate him. <laughs> and you think you're so special <laughs> for having done so. Right? I am the one who took this roamer, this loner, this whatever it is, you know, and brought him, you know, same thing on the other side, right? The second thing is the friend that has cheated in every relationship. <laughs> I'm more interested in that one. <laughs> you know, because the questions that you ask yourself then is, why is freedom always on the outside? What is it that you do that makes you mate in captivity? How do you lock yourself up? You know, how do you start to experience a sense of deadness on the inside and aliveness on the outside? How you start to feel that your relationship, when you're on the inside, you're doing what the other person wants you to do. And when you're on the outside, that's when you finally can attend to yourself. Why is it that when you are finally in connection, you experience it as a loss of self? Why do you find yourself in a dynamic with people, men or women, in which one of you starts to be afraid of abandonment and losing the other, and the other one starts to be afraid of suffocation and losing themselves? Do you understood that dance? And you find yourself continuously in that dance. Play generally on the side of I'm the one afraid to lose myself and the other person, if that person wants to, you know, restrain you, then they're afraid of losing you. 
And that's the, the theme of the dance that I'm hearing you describe. Yeah? So, people, um, I'm at estherperel.com. That's where you find me. Um, this conversation continues. It's just one evening right here, but you take it with you. And hopefully when you leave here, you kind of say, what's one thing that stood out for me? And, and talk about that. Do yourselves the favor, especially those who came as a couple, not to go into your cars and then start talking about who's picking up Jimmy tomorrow morning. <laughs> you know, it's such a tempting thing to be in this, to think, and then to go back and to fall right back into the more narrow range of conversations. Escape them. If you came with friends, do, have, take the opportunity. Use me to say, the lady with the accent, she said all these things. What do you think? <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's called a transitional object. You know, use me as the transitional object and then have the conversations. Take the opportunity. This is just your primer. Then you go and you cook after you leave. I'm just chopping the stuff up with you, giving you the themes, the names, and then you go and you go delve into this. Then it becomes interesting. Then you take your diaries. Then you write. And then you say, where have I been vis-a-vis -vis this? And then you write version one, which is the semi-truth. And then you write version two, which become a little closer to the truth. Then you throw those two things in the garbage can, and then if you have somebody that you need to actually write to, that's the one you're gonna send. Handwritten is better. Seriously, handwritten matters, because the emotions come through the arm like that. And if I can leave you with that, then these conversations start to scale, and then we start to improve the world of relationships. And then we will all participate in the idea that the quality of our relationships is what determines the quality of our lives. Thank you so much. Thank you to Esther Perel for this marvelous talk and Q&A and to the production team at the Radiant Intimacy event back in 2018. And thank you all for listening to the SAN podcast. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAN content, available exclusively to SAN members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well. <laughs>